Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Let's pray as we stand. Also, Paul writes, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since a son, God has also made you an heir. Our loving Father, thank you that that is true, that if we trust in Jesus Christ, we know that he has won that for us. He has died to make us your children, and you have sent your spirit into our hearts to impress that truth uh, with ever-increasing depth and reality. So do that, please, we pray. Would your spirit do that this morning again, we ask. Impress upon us how wonderful it is, the confidence we can have that we are your children and your heirs. Amen. Please do take a seat. Uh, you'll forgive me, my vo- I'm recovering from a cold. My voice uh, varies a little bit, um, but we'll get through. So yes, back in Galatians uh, chapter 4, uh, we are then uh, working our way through this letter uh, fairly slowly uh, over the weeks. Um, and, uh, but the essential message we've been saying week by week is uh, Paul has come along to, or Paul is writing a letter to uh, this region of Galatia in southern Turkey because... Some false teachers have come along and said, okay, you believe in Jesus Christ, good. That's how you begin the Christian life, faith in Christ. Now add obedience to certain rules and regulations. That will equal salvation. Faith in Christ plus law obedience equals salvation. And uh, Paul, in the strongest terms possible, says no. Faith in Christ equals salvation. That's it. That will naturally flow. Your character will change. You'll want to obey, 
But the sum is very different. Not faith plus obedience equals salvation. Just faith in Christ, that's it. That is all you need. And uh, last time we looked, uh, uh, as he described in slightly different language, saying that once you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You, Jesus Christ died to win for you the status of adoption. You belong to him, and you cannot lose it, as we've just been sung. There's a sense in which that is completely done. Once you become an heir, you can never be scrubbed out of the inheritance. It is a, it's a, it's a finished act. It is done for you. You've become a child of God. And then God sends his spirit into our hearts to impress that truth deeply, to help us realize that in in all different areas of our life. And it is as we dwell upon the work of Jesus Christ and and think about what he has done for us, that 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 truth will become increasingly real, will grow and realize as time goes on, the Father does love me, despite my performance today. And that's the Spirit's work, to rub it. He is the Spirit of Sonship, to rub that truth uh, inc- with increasing depth into our hearts. And yet, as we've, uh, we've just uh, seen read, the Galatians were turning away from that. So, I mean, it's fairly, fairly clear what the issue is. They're turning back from that wonderful privilege of relating to God as a father and are choosing, desiring to relate to him as a slave would to his master. Rather than the confidence, the freedom, the love of a father and a, a child, they say, no, we prefer to relate as a slave who wins the approval of a master. And really in today's passage, Paul is simply saying, why would you do that? Why would you do that? It's crazy. Don't, don't go back. So, uh, two, I mean, the passage breaks down really to these two questions. Your children of God, he says, or said last time we looked at this, one to seven. So the first question is, how, how can you turn back to slavery? Which is verses eight to 11. And the second, which relates to it, is and why would you turn from my ministry? The two are really overlapping questions, because once they've turned away from Paul, they've turned back to slavery. But uh, let's work through them then. First, the verses 8 to 11, how can you turn back to slavery? Let me uh, reread verses 8 and 9. Formerly, you Galatians, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or better, rather, are known by him, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Okay, what we need to work out is what, what is the slave master they're turning back to? What are these weak and miserable principles? Okay, actually, it's a little bit complicated, but let's, uh, let's go through it fairly quickly, I think. The, the idea, this, it's the word, it's a Greek word, stoikia. It's the same word that appears in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles. Basic principles you're turning back to. Now, it could be that uh, he's referring to uh, the fact that at the time, the basic principles in, in, in uh, Greek or Roman thought would be earth, wind, fire, water. Behind everything there is in life, there are these basic building blocks. So why are you turning back to the ABCs of life, he could be saying. But I think it makes much more sense to translate it slightly differently rather than principles, because it's a bit odd, isn't it? Who wants to, you know, to be enslaved by a principle? It's a slightly odd way of thinking. Normally someone who has you enslaved is a person of some kind. 
I think better verse 9 was translated, how is it you're turning back to these elemental spirits? There's a sort of personal element to it. Because it's the same group as verse 8. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. When you were pagans in the past, you were enslaved to false gods. How is it now you're turning back to weak and miserable spirits or false gods? That seems to be the logic of it, So, which would have been the case. As a Roman colony or a Roman region in Galatia, they would, um, as they lived their debauched lifestyle, they'd have uh, celebrated various different gods. So they'd have drunk wine and celebrated Bacchus, to you Bacchus, and, and had a good drink in his name. And they may well have uh, um, been sexually all over the place and said, Aphrodite, good on you, Aphrodite. Thank you for encouraging this uh, sort of licentious lifestyle. It's all very enjoyable. And as they went to make their money, Plutus, good on you, Plutus. We celebrate you, God of money, because you're helping us make us rich and go off to war. And well done, Mars. We celebrate you. So behind most actions, there was a sort of pagan deity. And so it seems to me that that is what Paul is referring to here. Uh, verse 8 Formerly, before Galatians, before you became Christians, you were enslaved to those pagan gods. That's what you lived for. You celebrated them as you went around your immoral lifestyle. That seems to make a great deal of sense to it. These were the things that drove you. That was your identity, really, as a group of people who loved all these different pagan gods. Okay. The issue comes, or there's one issue comes, verse 10. What are they turning towards? Well, verse 10, you're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. So what they're turning to now is law obedience. So do you see that, I mean, it's easy to miss, but do you see the slight issue that goes on here? It said, before, in the past, you were immoral and worshipped pagan gods. Verse 10, now what you're doing in the present is becoming religious Jews and obeying the law. But in the middle of those two, verse 8, verse 10, he says, and those are exactly the same things. You were enslaved to pagan gods. You were debauched pagans living immoral lifestyles. You're turning into religious Jews living, living moral lifestyles. Verse 9, that is precisely the same thing. You're worshipping exactly the same sort of gods. Do you see that? Actually, that's quite odd to us. That doesn't initially make sense because the Jew thinks he's acceptable because he's observing certain religious laws. The pagan thinks he's acceptable because culturally he joins in with the debauched lifestyle. Those are uh, two different. One is a way of immorality. One's a way of morality. But Paul says you're worshipping the same sort of God there. What have they got in common? Both are ways of making yourself acceptable. So what's it? The, the pagan lifestyle, go out, drink, sexually immoral. Well, that, that's just the culture of the time. And that's what you did. You blended in with that. And you gained your sense of worth from that. People valued you on how much wine you could drink, how much money you could earn, how many people you could sleep with. That, that gave you your sense of who you were, your identity. 
Now, he says, okay, well, you've thrown all that away. You think that's, they think that's in the past, but now what do you live for? You live for how good you are at obeying certain rules, how moral you are. Now, on face value, those are completely different things. But Paul says both are slavery to stoichia, elemental spirits. Both are a religious way of thinking. I can earn my acceptability before God, if there is one, or just my sense of identity. I gain it from what I achieve, my performance. They're both the same. Now, to Paul's audience then, that is outrageous. Saying to a rigid, highly moral individual, religious Jew, you're just the same as the pagan who's stumbling around in the gutter. That is, I mean, that is deeply offensive. And you see what, what he's saying here? He, <laughs> to try and uh, um, put it in modern terms, he's essentially saying, uh, the religious fundamentalist who thinks he can please Allah by being a suicide bomber is no different to the young man who gains his value from a succession of one-night stands. Both the same sort of way of living or thinking. Or the lovely, polite, middle-aged woman who every year goes out and collects money for charity, sells on the jumble sale, collects for Christian aid in order to please God, is actually no different from the teenager who's a member of a street gang and beats people up to get his sense of worth. Now that, is, that, is, that is surprising, isn't it? <laughs> that is, one is nice and one is nasty. We kind of can get on with one of them, but one of them we don't really like very much. Well, Paul is saying it's the same way of thinking. Both are trying to gain their sense of worth, their identity, their approval, their acceptability by what they do. Even though on face value they look completely different. A uh, very striking example of this. I don't know if you read um, Mohsin Ahmed's uh, novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Booker Prize winner, what, a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, terrifically interesting novel. It upset uh, uh, some, of course. Uh, uh, the main, if, if you've come across it, the main character is a, a young man called Changez. Uh, and uh, he is um, he's from Pakistan, uh, moves to America uh, as a young man. It, there's a big allegory going on, but we'll just, just leave that aside for now and just take the book on face value. So this young man, Changez, he moves to America as a young man and goes to Princeton. And he's the outstanding man of his class. So when he graduates, he is the brightest, most able, most talented, most able. So he gets a, a very, very well-high-paying job in a, in a New York corporation. They're slightly nasty. They buy companies and then split them up and sell off their constituent parts and make money. So they're a slightly nasty company. But uh, he does incredibly well with them. He's brilliant at his job. And his career trajectory is, is just zooming. Uh, and meanwhile, in New York, he, he uh, starts going out with this girl, Erica, who is a sort of socialite, uh, and so she, she gives him access to this, this world of, uh, I guess, uh, New York aristocracy in a sense. And so he goes to the, the best parties, the most intriguing restaurants. I mean, it, it, both his personal life, his professional life, he's on the sort of trajectory that many would dream of, and certainly as a young man he thinks he is living the American dream. Uh, and it, it makes him feel so 
good. He is so successful. Uh, and then in the novel, everything flips. Uh, 9-11 comes. He, this completely uh, uh, plays with his mind. And eventually he throws it all away, gives up his job, gives up the girlfriend, moves back to Pakistan, and immerses himself in Islam and becomes uh, 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 a devoted uh, religious follower. And, um, well, the novel ends pretty ambiguously if you've read it, uh, quite what happens at the end. You're, not, you're meant to sort of be uncertain. But in both of those scenarios, which on face value are radically different, you know, living off peanuts uh, in his shabby robes with his long beard, living the life that many would dream of, they're both just two different ways of trying to achieve the same thing. Who am I? What, what am I? Who am I? What is my identity here? What makes me who I am? Do I need to changes? It's changed. Do I need to... What, what is going on here? Both are precisely the same way of trying to do the, answer the same question. Both are a slavery. Can I ever rise high enough up the corporate ladder, marry well enough, go to enough parties, earn enough money to, to really make it in this social circle? Can I learn enough? Can I be devoted enough? Can I flagellate myself enough in order to be as devoted religiously as possible? They're both slaveries. There are two fundamentalists, and that's one of the questions of the book, it, which is the fundamentalism? Is it the American dream? Is it the religious lifestyle? Which is fundamentalism? And, um, and there are two ways of answering the same question. Who am I? They're both slaveries, he says. And Paul is saying, why would you do that? Okay, you realize that that pagan lifestyle was miserable. So you became a Christian. Why would you go back to the same sort of way, just with a different veneer? Why would you go back to slavery? Why would you do that? Completely different from the freedom you now enjoy of knowing you have a father who loves you. You are accepted. You are a child of God and nothing determines your identity more fundamentally than that. Why would you move on? There's no progression. It's just slavery again. Now, what's the appeal? I mean, why would they do this? I mean, it's not explicitly clear uh, in this little section. What, what's the appeal? Well, Paul, of course, is writing to those who, who know in their heads they're adopted as children of God, but it doesn't affect them. It hasn't really got to them emotively. They, they, they don't have the security. Why would they turn to, to slavery just because of that? Because they, they think, okay, well, I'm a Christian now, but it seems to be they're lacking somewhat of security or certainty. So it is, for those who are Christians, it is when Christians lack that that they feel the need to turn elsewhere. It is, a little bit of this last time, it is when we um, lose confidence in the Father's love for us as his children they're just uncertain. Can he really love me? Well, let me just be certain. Let me just find some security elsewhere. If I can just find some uh, markers that I can tick off, 
then I, I can know, if I can hit certain performance targets, then I can know for certain that he loves me. And so we frustrate the work of the Spirit in terms of trying to impress the truth upon our hearts because we seek markers of performance Christian maturity elsewhere. And of course, in one sense, um, there could be nothing, is this true? <laughs> there could be nothing worse than being in a church where uh, you hear very clearly God is holy, God is perfect, God is morally just. But you don't hear, and he loves you. Because if all you hear is the first, God is perfect, God punishes sin, God uh, hates unrighteousness, he hates wickedness, uh, he is perfect. You cannot approach him unless uh, you also are perfect. Oh, if you only hear the first half but never hear, and he sent his son to die for you so that he loves you. If you never hear that second half, that's a really miserable place to be. In that sort of setting, you're, you're, you could generate Christians who are wildly insecure, wildly looking around for something to cling on to, to, uh, to give them a sense of meaning. Because, gosh, before God, I, I really doubt who I am. Uh, I said last week, uh, Jim Packer's essay on adoption, just phenomenal, uh, uh, great little read, uh, 15 pages or something like that in his book, Knowing God. Just a terrifically encouraging thing to read. He has... Um, it makes a number of brilliant points, but uh, uh, one which I didn't fit in last week, so I can do it this week. The, um, uh, he makes a, a very striking point, I thought, on um, he's talking of adoption, and he refers back to the story of Luke 15, of the, uh, the prodigal son, or, or the two sons, and uh, talks about the point, if you remember the story of the youngest son, demands his, shaft, uh, his share of the uh, father's inheritance, and uh, goes away, makes a complete mess of his life, destroys his life, really. And he's serving pigs in a pigsty and thinks, this is awful. Even the worst servant in my father's house gets treated better than I can. Uh, so he returns home to his father, saying, and this is the striking bit, saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And Packer makes the point, that is a complete failure to understand how kind the father is. The younger son goes away, is rude, obnoxious to his father, destroys his life and comes back and says, well, I can no longer be your son because I've made such a mess of my life. Can I come back and be a servant, a slave, please? And what does the father do? He says, don't be ridiculous. You are my son. I love you. Will you get it into your thick head? You don't come back as a servant just because you mess up. Once a son, once an heir, always an heir. Come, let's go celebrate. And of course, he's making the point lots of Christians can think that way. Oh dear, I've made a mistake again. I've made a mess. Um, well, how do I approach God? Well, let's, let's, just, let's just ratchet up my performance a little bit. God, I'm going to come back to you. I, I should have done it a long time ago. Let's ratchet up my performance. This week, uh, my quiet times, oof, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll put in, uh, they'll be uh, 20 minutes longer uh, this weekend. I, I'm going to uh, give more money. I'm going to commit more. I'm going to um, uh, serve it in numerous new ways. And we think, okay, I, I've, I'm coming back now, God, and I can just... I can just earn my way back now. I come back to you as a hired man. I come back to you as a servant. No, don't do that. Come back to him as a father. His arms are open. 
Don't relate to him as a slave. Relate to him as a child. And if it's when we forget that, that we seek our security in, in other things. And it could be we go for the religious route, as the Galatians are doing, in our religious performance. It could be the way we, we, we just retreat back to paganism and think, oh, okay, well, let me find my security and how much money I've got in my bank account. Is it, is it 10,000 yet? Is it 50,000? Oh, thank goodness, it's 100,000. I'm secure now. Or whatever it may be. Our social circle, wearing the right clothes, meeting the right people. You can, you can seek it in different ways, but they're the same. In pagan achievements, in religious performance, just the same. Slavery. Don't, don't live your life that way. Live your life as a son, an heir, says Paul. And if you fail to do that, well, that'll rob the Christian life of all its joy. How could you turn back to slavery? You have a father whose arms are wide open. Just walk into them. Walk back saying, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your child, but you still treat me like one. That's phenomenal. Here I am. Thank you very much. Don't turn back to slavery. Second thing, it overlaps, but more briefly. Uh, Paul makes it a bit more personal in, in the language he takes. So the second thing, which is 12 to 20, how could you turn away from my ministry, he asks. Uh, let's just read it to get that personal sense. Uh, verse 12, I plead with you, brothers, become like me because I became like you. You've done me no wrong, as you know. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. You welcome me as if I was an angel of God, as if I was Christ Jesus himself. Wow. Now, deeply personal, I plead with you. This matters to me, he says. Become like me. I think by that, given the argument of the whole paragraph here, he's saying, become like me, verse 19. Have Christ formed in you. Is his desire. Become like me, who I just long to see myself become like Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because, look, I became like you. When I came to Galatia, I didn't just stand distant. I didn't just walk through the square and shout the gospel at you and then moved on. I, I spent time with you. I came to understand you. I, I, I saw your lives. I understood your culture. I drew alongside you, and then I shared the gospel with you. I was... In the language, the metaphor, verse 19, I was like a mother to you. And all this little reminiscing, do you remember? I mean, it was only because I was ill that I came along to you. We don't know what that illness is. Uh, it could be had a problem with his eyes, given that they tear out his, their eyes. We, but, you know, we really don't know anything about that. But I, I only came to you because of illness. And look, my illness was pretty disgusting, verse uh, 14. I mean, gosh, you'd have been right to have treated me with contempt or scorn. But even though I looked disgusting, whatever that meant. I was some kind of leper amongst you. You loved me because you understood the gospel and it gave you enormous joy. You'd have ripped out your eyes and given them to me, verse 15, because you had so much joy when you first became Christians. What happened? What has happened? In one sense, he's, he's already answered the question. You're, you're turning back to slavery. That'll rob you of joy. Only living in the freedom of knowing God is your father will, will give you this joy. And why have they turned back to slavery? Well, because they've followed the wrong sort of ministry. And so in 16 to the end, Paul is really 
Um, he's contrasting the ministry he undertook with them with that of the false teachers. So it's, let's just spend a couple of minutes doing that. It's worth doing. Comparing these two paths, which for me was quite hard work doing it this week. But um, let's have a go. Let's just compare these two different groups then. The, the, the false teachers in Galatia, those saying, you know, pursue law obedience, and uh, then what he was trying to do. You can do it under a number of ways. Look at the different objectives, uh, first of all. So uh, the, the false teachers, what were their objectives? Well, verse 17, they were zealous for the Galatians to win you over. They want, they want to alienate uh, the Galatians from Paul so that the Galatians are zealous for them. Essentially, these false teachers... They want bums on seats. They want people signed up. Uh, they, they want numbers here. They are, uh, see it again in chapter 6, verse 13, they want to boast about the number of converts that they've got personally. They are deeply insecure readers. Who get their sense of life from who's around, who's around, who have we converted? Emotionally, they're needy. They clearly lack the security of, of, of knowing God's a father. So these are Counting, needy, insecure leaders, just desperate to, to gain that kind of their team. What about Paul? His objective was quite straightforward, verse 19. I want you to become like Jesus. I want to see Christ for me. I'm not in it for the glory. I'm not in it for the goodness. I just want to see you become like Jesus. I don't care about followers, I want believers, or partners, or co workers. The method is, is very different as well. So for these false teachers, their method is uh, it's flattering. It's flattering. They're, they're zealous for the Galatians. They make much of them. They, they pay courts to the Galatians. Oh, just on the base of gospel, aren't you? Well, really, you should move on now. I mean, you're so talented, so so able, so bright, um, so impressive. You should move on with us now to the, the full obedience gospel. That's flattering, flattering. Paul's method, well, he's not scared to tell the truth. Verse 16, I know I've your enemy by telling you the truth. A couple of weeks ago, chapter 3, verse 1, this idiot's. It's pretty blunt. Galatians is, is its doctrine on the battlefield. His language is clear. It's blunt. He's not scared of telling the truth. Now, he, he's drawn alongside them. These are people he loves. telling the truth. I think prefer not to, verse 20. I wish I could change my tone. But at the moment, I need to be clear. These different objectives, these different methods. And there's a cost for Paul. And read that there being any cost for the false teachers, but for this period cost in this eccentric metaphor of verse 19. Well, this doesn't make sense, does it? If you get his point, verse 19, here's Paul's cost. My dear children, for whom I have again in the painting childbirth into Christ's form. Makes no sense. Um, I'm a man, I've given birth to you, I'm giving birth to you again, and still. Become like an adult, it just makes no sense as a metaphor. But you see his point. 
I am so invested in you as a parent with a child that when you go wrong, it hurts. Parents know that. And the only child is more acute pain than they recently finished. And the toddler grabs a toy and bashes another over their head. It's a bit embarrassing. And you you're embarrassed and wish they wouldn't do it. Um, when, as they get a little bit older at school, they get into the wrong crowd and their behaviour's not what you'd like it to be. We worry for them. And they're a teenager and they go out and eat. And you fear for them. And then they're older and they're in work. And they get in with them and start taking a load of drugs. And you're anxious for them. really throw themselves into that lifestyle and they reject you as parents yes. and they will deceive you. That hurts. But you say that when you invest in people and they make bad decisions, hurts. Compared when you do that, you the older you get, the more painful it is. Hurts. You, you feel that. That's enough. Your children. Child is one twenty-five, whatever it is, but they're your children. And they make stupid decisions. That gosh, that hurts. And Paul's saying, Yeah, there's a real cost to my sort of ministry. And right now, it really hurts. Because I look at what you're doing and it's madness. You are you I'm like a parent watching a child who's self-harming. It's wretched to watch. It hurts. False teachers, well, they couldn't care less. They just, you know, you turned up, no, okay, well, whatever. They don't care. Very different forms of ministry. So, uh, let me ask two little questions. What sort of ministers do you want? And are we these sort of people? I mean, what sort of ministers do you want? Do you, it's worth asking because do we really want this? Because no one culturally, no one really wants someone to come alongside them and be as challenging as Paul was with, uh, with, his, uh, with his congregations. No one really wants that. Do you realize what you're doing is really stupid? You don't say that in the 21st century. No one wants that unless, unless your greatest desire is not to have your ego stroked, but your greatest desire is to have Christ formed in you. Well, then, then you'll want this sort of ministry, not people that will puff you up but people who speak the truth, having understood you, having drawn alongside you, yes, of course, but that, that's what you want. And then are we these sort of people? Is it our objective to, on the one hand, just popularity, have people like us, um, you know, just blow smoke a little bit so you know, people are on our side, or just more concerned to see them become like Christ? Because it's much easier to do the former than the latter. Much, much easier. Are we those who, well, I guess you could go wrong in a number of ways. You could, we could be those. I mean, it's worth asking, isn't it, temperamentally, which of these sort of characters you are. All of us will broadly brush fit into one. Are we those who love to just, we'll just speak platitudes and tell people they're very nice. And even if we think they're probably doing something wrong, well, I don't like to interfere. Um, too much like that. We're just those who speak nicely. Are we those who 
by the other, on the other extreme, make no attempts to understand what's going on in someone's life, no understanding of, of their life scenario, but just speak the truth, because that's what they need to hear. Um, and, you know, we could fall into either of those two camps. Or, of course, the Paul, Paul's method is, look, I love you. And if you make a bad decision, it makes me want to cry. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I, don't, I wish I could change my tone. Forgive me if I get the language wrong. But you need to hear this because I'm gutted for the mistake you're making. Are we those sort of people? <laughs> those are the sort of people we want to be to, to one another. Is there anyone you'd cry over if they made a bad mistake in the Christian life? It's a sort of love that Paul has for his people. Why would you turn away from that sort of ministry, he says? Okay, so what's happened to your joy? What, what are you doing, says Paul? Why turn away from a father who loves you back to slavery? Why turn away from ministers who are pointing you to that father? Why would you do that? That's crazy. That is crazy. The only reason you do it is if you, you, you forget. You drift. You haven't, you don't, we don't grasp quite the volume of the father's love for us. But we need to do that. We said last time, that is the Spirit's work. He impresses that upon our hearts. Chapter 4, verse 7, uh, verses 6 and 7, as we dwell upon the work of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And we need to do that. We need to take stop, give thanks for our freedom, look to Jesus Christ, and let the Spirit transform our affections, to, uh, help us understand what it means that we are children who will inherit. We don't need to perform. That work is done, completely done. So we can be those who return to the Father if we're Christians. Why well, do we put it this way? If you were never a Christian, you can come back to God and know him as Father by saying, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy to be your child. But I think I understand now that's what you want me to be. And that's why Jesus came to die in my place so I could be your child. And for those of us who are Christians, that's how we come back every, every time. That's why we say our confessions personally on our own, corporately once a week when we gather. Heavenly Father, we come back to you. Not deserving to be your child. Deserving only to be a slave. But you come, we come to you, your arms are open wide. You run out to greet us. You don't wait for us. As soon as we turn to you, you run gather us up and say it's done. Let me pray. Our Father, how you must uh, shed tears over your children for us, for how stupidly we uh, turn from you we seek our security and identity in other things. When you are holding your arms out all day long, longing to pull us into ever tighter embrace, longing for, to, uh, by your spirit, drive that truth deeper and deeper into our affections, that we are your children, that we will in inherit the whole of creation with our older brother, Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that. So, Father, would we be formed increasingly by that truth, and not turn to slavery, either the slavery of 
uh, morality and religious performance, or indeed immorality, and seeking our identity in worldly things, would we find it in knowing that we are beloved children of yours? Amen.